we should not be afraid to say that RTI is the right thing to do um, and, and, and make sure that we all have a good understanding of what RTI is. So um, we got for our guest today, uh, Theo Woodrove. Uh, she is currently a project coordinator at the University of Texas Counseling and Mental Health Center, but she also provides professional development and technical assistance related to research-based literacy, instructional practices, understanding and um, using data, and response to intervention to states, districts, and schools. More specifically, she has provided support to Texas state-level partners districts and schools through building RTI capacity for the implementation in Texas schools project at UT Austin's Meadows Center and occasionally lectures at the university. She is also the lead author on Texas Literacy Achievement Academies for K through three and the Reading to Learn Academies for four through five. Prior to this work, Dr. Woodruff has, was a reading specialist and an English language arts coordinator for Diwali ISD. And before her work as a district administrator, she was a project director, researcher, and instructor at the University of Texas in Austin. At the university's Vaughn Gross Center for Reading and Language Arts, she directed the Texas Reading First Project and worked on several research projects related to reading instruction and interventions and professional development with, with teachers, including project examining the a project examining the implementation of a tier three model in reading for K through three students. So Dr. Woodruff, are are you like the one who basically created the reading academies that everyone's doing right now? So I was the one so so I've worked at the Meadows Center, used to be called the Vongro Center, which used to be called the UT Center for Reading and Language Arts. I have worked there since like 1999 off and on. And so the original academies, you know, came from the 90s before I got there, were written by folks at the UT Center for Reading Language Arts. And then I helped revise them um, in 2009. And then I created the new ones. I was the lead author on the ones that came out in 2016, 2017, that a lot of people uh, went through. Some people don't know about those. Those were all face-to-face. -face. And then um, Cherry Lee and folks took those... Um, those versions that we created and basically put them, a lot of the same materials, put them into the ones that people are going through now that are in Canvas that um, folks out of, I think, Region 11 were mostly in charge of uh, putting together. But they, but Cherry Lee asked me, she's like, can we take your stuff from these, the 2016, 2017 ones? And I was like, yeah, sure, you can take whatever you want. So, um, so a lot of those, if you go through those, those are a lot of the materials that I uh, that my that our team created back in 2016, 2017 that I was the lead author on. Very cool. All right. I just had to get that out of the way. I was I was reading the bio and I was like, oh, okay. Um, so as a premise to this discussion, I want to catch everybody up if you weren't listening last week. Last week, I provided an overview of the status of RTI in Texas and reviewed the TEA website regarding RTI and Child Find. We talked about the building RTI capacity in the TEMI, which is the Texas um, Early Math Inventory. And we talked a little bit about tier and the website resources. And we also talked about philosophical differences between the originators of RTI and those who support the PSW model and how those two views can be very contrary to each other. We discussed how corrective action has perhaps steered people away from RTI efforts and has um, been more dependent on special, it's created a situation where we become more dependent on special education to pro provide any kind of intervention, making us caught in a place, us as diagnosticians caught in a place where it's hard for us to do an assessment without the context of what we, know for sure would be quality instruction, especially if we are coming out of COVID where quality instruction was greatly impacted. So um, we got into, you know, one of the things I brought up was, you know, that I was so devastated that this building RTI capacity website was down and, and what had happened to it. So um, you could, you kind of caught me up on that. And, and I don't know, maybe just go ahead and share with a little bit, a little bit with people about what happened to the to the website and what the plan is for it. 
Sure. So, um, so building RTI capacity was actually, it started out as a project called Spotlight Three Tier. And then that was, and that was kind of trying to work with some specific uh, campuses to implement what we knew from the research on RTI and the three tier model. And I had worked originally back in the early 2000s on the three tier research project with uh, Sylvia Lennon Thompson and Sharon Vaughn um, and some other folks. And, uh, and then the spotlight three tier came out. And so the idea was to try to, to kind of have these demonstration, these model demonstration campuses that could show how to do three tier. And then that morphed into the building RTI project and um, the website that was created. And that was funded by TEA for, oh gosh, probably close to at least 15 years, maybe get, maybe close to uh, 20 years. And then um, TEA shifted the funding for that project from that building RTI project to the tier project that Sarah Powell is now the uh, principal investigator on. And when they did that, they stopped funding for building RTI, which meant we didn't have, we didn't have any funding anymore to maintain that website, which is required um, to maintain the links. Some of, we had a lot of online modules like um, that kind of these sort of mini courses that people could take that had been created in Adobe Flash. Those all went down when Adobe Flash stopped uh, functioning and stopped working back, I guess a couple of years ago. So we didn't have anybody, we weren't, didn't have any funding to to have somebody to maintain the website to keep the links uh, going, to keep, uh, to make sure, you know, to answer questions that came in. And so it finally had to come down and I guess uh, it was supposed to have come down on uh, January 1st of this year. I think they kept it up a little bit longer, but we do have all the resources that were there because we had somebody go through uh, on tier. I actually had a, a graduate student go through and pull everything off of the website and put it in box folders. Uh, including the resource pages, all the links. I had made videos of all the online modules back when Adobe Flash stopped working. I turned videos, so I have all of those. Um, but the plan is to have all of those materials either in the Meadows Center library. So if you go to the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk website and you go to the library, you can start to see some of those materials have been put, especially some of the documents and booklets and things have been put in the library, uh, Meadows Center Library. And then eventually the idea is to have them on the tier website somehow organized. Of course, the problem with that is that I don't think that everybody completely understands is we had more than 700 materials, uh, resources on that website. And we had spent a good chunk of time, about a year and a half, just trying to redo the website to create a search tool to make it possible for people to have easier access to those resources. And that took us a little while to do. And so I'm not exactly sure how tier, how they're thinking it's going to be organized on the tier website um, to make it easy to find those things. But for now they're in box folders. And so people can email me and I can give you access to those box folders and you can go through. The problem is they're just not as well organized as they were on our website or searchable. So so that's that was kind of what happened. Gotcha. All right. So um, just some of the things thinking about the status of RTI in Texas, you know, there's awful lot of definitions and ways to sort of judge RTI. Um, as diagnosticians, we often find RTI is just another word for tutoring. Um, and sometimes these tutoring groups are progress monitored, sometimes not. Um, sometimes the way they're progress monitored varies. Some people use curriculum-based measures, some people don't, have no idea what they are. Um, some use uh, evidence-based interventions. Some just do reteaching and pre-teaching in small groups. Um, some rely on um, the teacher to figure it out all on their own. And then others have a team that meets regularly or there's a lot of guidance from the district. Uh, and and some some schools will actually set a aside a time for interventions. Some have a person to provide the intervention. Some don't. Um, so, what are some of the non-negotiable elements of RTI that we are lacking in Texas school systems? Sure. So, just to to address the whole tutoring thing, the way that I talk about tutoring, because we had the same thing, and when I was working uh, in the district that I worked in for several years as the reading language arts coordinator. Some t schools would tell me that their tutoring was their, say, their tier two intervention. And I had to explain to them that tier two is actually real. Or, I'm sorry. Uh, tutoring is really, in my opinion, an extension of tier one. 
So tutoring is just basically you're trying to get kids up to grade level on some standard. You're working on some grade level standard and the students need more practice. That's not a tier two intervention or a tier three intervention. Um, so, but the, the problem is really understanding what intervention is, really understanding what, uh, what progress monitoring is. Um, so, so I'll tell you the non-negotiable. So obviously you have to have core instruction that is research-based, evidence-based, meaning that the things that are being done in core instruction are based on the evidence, the best evidence that we have from scientific research uh, in whatever the domain is, whether that's reading, writing, mathematics, behavior. So that's, that's a, the first non-negotiable. And that, quite honestly, unfortunately, uh, people have core instruction, of course, happening. The problem is it's not evidence-based very often. So it's things that people are doing that are just, that go against what we know from the science. Uh, and I can give you an example of that. In reading, for example, we know that the that explicit instruction in, in decoding and phonics and phonemic awareness is essential for students in pre-K, kinder, and first grade, uh, and into second grade, of course. And um, and then, of course, more advanced word study, like teaching students about reading multisyllabic words, teaching uh, students morphological awareness, so teaching them about or uh, becoming morphologically aware, like prefixes and suffixes. And re These are things that we know should be taught all the way up, you know, even into middle school and high school, teaching students about multisyllabic words. And um, those things are not happening in in across the board. So I very often go into kindergarten classrooms, for example, and we'll see almost no phonemic awareness instruction. Uh, the phonics instruction is not explicit. They're very much, kindergarten teachers seem very bought into the idea of trying to get kids to memorize a bunch of high frequency words. Um, they seem to think that they're supposed to have students memorizing like a hundred high frequency words by the end of the year. I have to explain to them that the standards actually say that students should have about uh, 20 to 25 um, high frequency words and that most of the standards around word study are around phonemic awareness and phonics. So, so you know, we this is this is actually a foundational this is a this is probably the most systemic problem because if we get good core instruction happening we can do that will meet the needs of 80 percent maybe up to 85 percent of students who will not need interventions if we just do good core instruction and that's one of the things we found on our research project is if we can actually get tier one where it needs to be then the interventions that we have to provide are don't have to be provided to that many students um, but that would be the number one issue. And, and quite honestly, that stems from lots of problems. Um, in reading, teachers don't get good, do not get good education in what research-based, evidence-based reading instruction should look like. They don't really get it for writing either. Um, Sarah Powell can come on and talk about mathematics and she has the same, uh, the same perspective on uh, what's, what teachers get related to mathematics. So, um, so that'd be the first non-negotiable. The second is to provide these evidence-based interventions in tier two. So tier two is meant to be outside of tier one. It's not meant to be during tier one. So it's supposed to be giving students more time on task in smaller group settings targeted at specific needs based on data. Um, so, so that's another non-negotiable is that tier two. And it has to be, ev again, evidence-based. So people are not using things that are evidence-based. So what's happening a lot of times, is again, I, I can give reading as an example because that's my area of expertise, is people are just doing more of what they're doing in core instruction that isn't evidence-based. They're doing more of that in, in tier two and honestly even in tier three. So you get kids getting the exact same non-evidence-based instruction. For example, there is widespread use of materials that are still based on the three queuing system which has no evidence for it whatsoever. So the three queuing system is this idea that we guess words based on context, uh, based on semantics, based on looking at pictures. This is actually a terrible strategy for learning how to read. It's what um, dyslexic students often use. It's what students who struggle with reading use. It's what students who haven't been taught how to read uh, use to guess words. Um, and so that is being used, that is actually not only the basis for core instruction, it's also the basis for tier two, often for tier three, and <laughs> for the assessments that are being used. So that the this idea of leveling students and putting in students in leveled text to differentiate instruction, there's literally no research behind that. I continue to tell people, if you can give me research that shows that that is an effective way of teaching kids how to read, I will read it and I will share it with other people. Not There has not been a single person in the last 10 years of me asking for that research that has been able to give me research on leveling and using leveled text 
to teach with and using uh, those kinds of assessments that level students. So, um, so okay, so core instruction, evidence-based tier two, of course, evidence-based tier three for students who tier two doesn't work. T tier three is gonna be uh, to some extent more individualized, uh, more targeted, uh, usually it's a longer time period. So instead of being 25 or 30 minutes, it's 45 minutes, typically every single day. Um, it's going to be smaller groups. So usually two or three students versus tier two, usually four or five students. And um, uh, so, so all those kind of levels of instruction, again, core, all students are getting core instruction and then students are either getting tier two or tier three, depending on their needs uh, outside of the core instruction. And then the heart of response intervention, which I prefer to use response intervention versus multi-tiered systems of support, which is what the state of Texas and a lot of folks are going to now, because for whatever reason, I guess RTI has gotten a bad rap. And so now people are using MTSS instead. The problem with MTSS is it doesn't have the R. The R in response intervention is the data. So that's the data that's telling you whether these love these levels of instruction, these interventions are working. If you are not collecting progress monitoring data, if you're not collecting screening and progress monitoring data, and then also diagnostic data for students, especially students in interventions to diagnose and to sort of figure out where they are. And when I say diagnostics, I know this is a lot of uh, diagnosticians on here. I'm not talking about the formal diagnostics that you do for like in, an, uh, in a special education evaluation. I mean, informal diagnostic data that you collect when you do a screening measure. So when I when I do an oral reading fluency measure, I listen to a child read. I get, in addition to the numbers that I get, the accuracy score, so the percent of words read correctly, the words correct per minute, right, the fluency score, I also get information about the mistakes that students are making. So are they dropping inflectional endings? Are there certain words that they can't read that they should be able to read, maybe high frequency words? Are they reading with the correct level of prosody? Are they attending to punctuation? Are they pausing in, in the correct places? So are they phrasing and chunking text correctly? That's all information, qualitative information, diagnostic information that I get when I listen to a child read. When I analyze a child's spelling, I get information about what sounds are they mixing up. Uh, are they having phonemic? Is it a phonological issue? Or is there more of an orthographic issue? That is diagnostic data that I can then use to uh, tailor the small group instruction I'm going to be providing in tier one and then to know where to start in my interventions in tier two and tier three. So if we are not collecting those kinds of data and then that progress monitoring data that's letting us know exactly what impact our instruction is having. Is it accelerating a student's uh, learning? And by acceleration, I mean, when we collect progress monitoring data, we graph it, we create a line graph and that gives us a slope, right? A line of uh, a, a rate of progress that shows us a line of progress. If that slope is where it needs to be, if it's going to show that a student is going to hit the goal that we have for them, then that's good, the intervention's working. If that slope is not where it needs to be, and I know it's hard to see the, see this when we, we don't have any visuals here, but if that slope is sort of flatter, if it's not at the level of response, then that tells us we need to do something different in our intervention because it's not having the impact that we want. Um, if we aren't doing those, collecting all those kinds of data and using them uh, to, to evaluate our instruction, to see are we doing what we need to, then we are not doing RTI, period end of story. <laughs> like it is not that that is the heart of RTI and uh, or if you want to call it MTSS. And that is another significant problem in the state of Texas. People, teachers do not understand progress monitoring data. They do not understand how to use progress monitoring data. They don't understand the importance of it. They don't know how to graph progress monitoring data to look at both trend lines and aim lines and goal lines. I start saying all this stuff People have no idea very often what I'm talking about when I start showing them how to look at data like this. And I have been talking about this kind of data literally for 20 years. I have been doing response intervention. In fact, Jack Fletcher, I present with him every once in a while, and he'll tell you he is still using the same presentations he was doing in the late 90s because people just aren't doing what we know from the science. Uh, and that's a, that's that falls back on university. Universities are not preparing folks, are not preparing teachers or administrators uh, out in the field to really understand what we mean by RTI, what we mean by the science of teaching, the science of reading, the science of mathematics. And so teachers are just, we just continue to do these same things. And then we blame RTI and say, well, this process isn't working. It's because you're not actually doing RTI. You might've put some people in a classroom, put a person in there, like you were talking about, like 
doing tutoring or putting a, a, a teacher with some students, but they have no idea what to do. They have no idea how to look at data. They have no idea how to, to I'm, in fact, you know, one of the things I used to do that I get asked, uh, that I used to get asked when I was in our district was just sitting and listening to kids read with the teacher because they just didn't even know what to pay attention to when a child was reading. Um, these are very basic fundamental things that are at the heart of uh, RTI that people just don't have any uh, any idea how to do, any experience with or, or knowledge of how to do these things. Okay, my head is just like um, bobbleheading like right now and I like can't stop it from bobbleheading. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and and I feel like you're like talking a language, like, like I spoke a foreign language all these years and like you speak my language and I found somebody that speaks my language. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a relief, you know, um, but, but, you know, like I haven't been wrong. Like this is the way I was trained, you know, and um, at University of Maryland and I came here and, you know, they're talking about patterns of strengths and weaknesses was totally foreign to me. Um, I was still like, I don't care where the kid is right now. I care about where they were and where they're going. If mm -hmm. they were, you know, that matters more, ma matters a lot more than where they are right now. And the testing a lot of times would just tell you where they are right now. Mm -hmm. So um, so you received grant money from IES to do research in RTI. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the research you did and um, how that affected funding? And, and um, yeah, just a little bit of summary about some of the research. So I, so like I said, you know, I was, I worked with um, Sharon Bond and Sylvia Lennon Thompson. So they were actually the people who received uh, the money that sort of funded the three-tier research project. And that, that, that project went on from right around 2000, I guess, 1999, 2000, up through until about 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. And so my part on that project uh, under Sharon and Sylvia was to help lead the tier one efforts. So the core instruction and specifically in reading. So we were looking at three-tier in reading. Uh, and working with K through three grade levels uh, at elementary schools in one district. And the idea there was trying to look at and sort of document, okay, so how does this research, how does this work? Uh, what, what, what do we need to do in tier one? What do we need to do in tier two and tier three? And so that was where some of this, uh, some of this that I know about core instruction and how important it is, like some of the papers that came out of that research were really about core instruction and how central that is, especially in like kinder and first grade, that our biggest impacts actually came from core instruction, not from doing the tier two, but from doing the core instruction and getting uh, teachers doing what they needed to do across the board in their classrooms. And one of the big findings, I will tell you in that too, that we, I don't know that we ever wrote a paper on it, but it was one of the things that we realized was if the principal understands what we're talking about and the principal understands at least to some extent what reading instruction should look like and what core instruction should look like, then it can happen. If the principal doesn't really understand what we're talking about and doesn't understand how to use data, doesn't understand how to help teachers use data, then it, it's almost impossible to do RTI effectively. You can get RTI going well, say in one classroom or in a few classrooms here and there across a campus. But if you don't have principals, if you don't have leaders who really understand how to do this across their campus and then district folks who understand how to do this across the district, it's very hard to really implement RTI at the level that it's meant to be implemented. Um, and then we also figure out, you know, there are things that are, were figured out in interventions. For example, um, there are students who just seem to uh, they're not, it's not that they don't respond. It's just, they're very low responders and it's very, very difficult to move kids fluency scores. So, or reading fluency, especially once they get to second, even second grade, third grade, um, having difficulty really, uh, moving some of those kids. Again, if you, especially if you're all, if you're relying on the interventions alone to do it and not getting core instruction up to where it needs to be, because most of the kids time is spent in core instruction. Um, we did find too, we did have a paper that um, showed that if you're doing RTI effectively, you can uh, decrease the number of students going into special education in first grade. In the, in the district I was working in and, um, and across a lot of districts, I think in Texas um, that I've worked with, first grade very often is a place where um, students start to be identified for special education or, or right after first grade. And uh, in our study, like we decreased that percentage quite a bit by doing RTI effectively because 
kids weren't struggling in reading anymore. And reading is, you know, one of the main reasons for students to be identified with a specific learning disability or for dyslexia, obviously. Um, uh, and so if you can get teachers in kinder and first grade doing what they need to do, you can decrease those numbers. It doesn't mean you're not going to have any kiddos going to dyslexia or any kid, kiddos who need special education, but you can really start to, to, decrease those numbers to where special education is no longer than 20 or 25 percent of the students it's more like what it's supposed to be which is more like five percent of the students or you know even smaller percentages again but it takes the whole a whole effort across all of those elements and that's the the biggest problem is you know you'll get good individual teachers doing things but across the board across a campus it's very rare that we go in a school and it's all happening at the level that um, that you would want to see it. So I have two things to clarify. First of all, when you say core instruction, you're not talking about core curriculum because that's a bad word. No, I'm talking about the 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 core, the the main, you know, if you look at a teacher's reading schedule and they say reading language arts two hours, that's their core instructional time. Okay. Right. And then and so what are they doing in that core time in that core reading time? to teach? Are they doing small group and differentiated small group instruction? Are they teaching? Are they using explicit instruction? Do they have uh, some kind of explicit phonics program that they're using? Um, are they teaching all the different components, vocabulary? And I, again, I'm talking about reading because that's my area of expertise. Are they teaching comprehension and vocabulary and fluency and uh, phonemic awareness and phonics? You know, those five kind of components of reading. Um, that's what I mean by core instruction. Right. And then the other thing I wanted to clarify, so you're saying that you could get an evidence-based intervention without being in special ed, because I yes. think that's a, a lot of what people are feeling. Oh, well, poor things. It's not going to get any help, you know, and I'm like, why, you know, why, why, why does it have to that way? Yeah, no, the whole idea is to try to provide interventions as early as possible um as as part of this is this is something i'm noticing i was just reading some people's some uh campuses mtss plans we have a cohort group out of uh with the tier project so we've got campuses who are like yes we want to do mtss effectively work with us and help us do this so i was just reading through their mtss plans and there's a real i think misunderstanding of the connection between uh rti or mtss whichever one you want to call it and special education um, the whole point, the whole idea is RTI, MTSS is meant to be general education. So the idea is we're collecting data, we're examining that data, we're figuring out which students need interventions right now, ASAP, and we're putting them in those interventions the next day because we have the interventions in place, we have somebody teaching those interventions, we have evidence-based programs that we are using to teach those interventions. That's happening now. We don't have to wait, we don't have to go through an ARD, we don't have to, because we can see the need and we're and we're so we're just going to provide those interventions now and 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 then and collect that data and document what we're doing in those interventions that is evidence based and then that gives us data if we do get to the point where we say you know what this child looks like they have a learning disability this child looks like you know based on the progress based on what we're seeing and now we have all of this data all these strategies we've been using all this data we've been collecting that we can then help inform the evaluation that needs to be done for them versus so doing this one shot testing so right. to say there's no funding for it is not really true because the more kids we're putting in special ed, the more funding we're putting in special ed, special ed, special eds. I mean, so if we put funding to RTI, I mean, you're still spending money, but it's just getting kids help quicker because they don't have a bunch of hoops to jump through to get it. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that you know that that RTI is a general ed is a general ed framework. This is this is what I tell people is if you actually understood RTI. RTI would be your entire framework for how you organize all instruction on your campus. It would be your method, your framework, your lens for providing what students need when it comes to reading, writing, mathematics, behavior, and then other content areas where you would be embedding reading and writing and literacy practices within science and social studies. If you really understood it, if you didn't just see it as an add-on thing that you had to do, if you really embraced it, it would be the entire way that you organized your campus around instruction. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about the originators of RTI. I, and when I say originators of RTI, I'm talking about what I come to call, I mean, I just have to go there with, with Texas because um, they're kind of, you know, not on the, not on board. I feel like people are not on board with this sort of um, the originators of, of the way um, 
the originators have thought of RTI. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to call them hardcore RTI people. <laughs> I mean, usually like the students of Stan Dino, Edward Shapiro, uh, like Edward Shapiro, Julia Alonzo, Doug Morrison, mm-hmm. um, who received some of that early funding for mm-hmm. school improvement research and RTI development. You know, I put a post on the on um, on Facebook saying that you know that. Um, the, this RTI was a school improvement program before it was ever a track to special education. Mm-hmm. So, um, and much of their work started with curriculum-based measures. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about curriculum-based measures as a measure for improvement and the role these measures play in an RTI program? From To me, I feel like you can't have an RTI program without curriculum-based measures. Is that true? Yes. I mean, curriculum-based measures is what I, uh, is another, I just use that in progress monitoring synonymous because Curriculum-based measures are what you use to do progress monitoring, right? And curriculum-based measures are a form of curriculum-based assessment. We have a whole, that's a much larger, bigger umbrella, right? Um, so curriculum-based measures, though, are the this kind of measure that basically um, is looking at is something you can use to gauge student progress across time. And the reason that's, that it doesn't get used and people don't understand it is they think of an assessment as, I taught this thing, now I'm going to see, can the kid do it right so we think of them like end of unit tests or uh we think of like end of year tests like the star or something like that those are fine and those are but those are a different kind of assessment curriculum-based measures are designed to look at progress over time so the idea is you give a child this assessment that is going to be sort of at this same level so at the same you know level of difficulty and you have multiple probes of it, right? So you have 20 or 30 or 40 of this same probe at these levels, um, and the child is going to then do those probes over time, and the idea is that it's going to demonstrate growth. So initially, they may not do as well on those probes because on what's in those probes are, are things that are gonna be taught across the curriculum. That's what this, it's called curriculum-based measures. And the idea is that these measures are sensitive enough that if the child is making progress, if the child is learning and can apply what they're uh, learning, then they should improve on these measures. So oral reading fluency is the is the one that's known best, right? So we give a child a grade level uh, probe uh, protocol. They read it aloud for one minute. We use a three second rule. It's standardized. Um, and we have, it's been demonstrated, this probe that we're using has been used in research and has been um, verified, validated as a good measure based on using it with thousands and thousands of, and the idea is we have multiple uh, versions of that probe, multiple versions of that protocol that can give us an oral reading fluency score, it can give us an accuracy score, and we can see improvement across the year on that. Um, the Sarah Powell and uh, the group on tier, one of the things that they were charged with doing over the last two years was creating a progress monitoring, a set of progress monitoring probes for K through six in mathematics. So that's actually coming out. In fact, those cohort schools I was talking about on our tier project are using that mathematics progress monitoring measure right now. They're, that's one of their things that they, I think, were supposed to agree to was to use these progress, these math progress monitoring probes uh, at their campuses to sort of for them to kind of work out the kinks and see how it's working and see um, you know where teachers are having difficulty and or, or finding it easy to use these um, these data from those mathematics probes. So the idea is that these are more sensitive, and this is one of the things. Like another good example is a maze measure, right? So a maze measure is where um, a child reads a passage silently, usually for a time period like maybe three minutes. And then, um, uh, and then has to fill in the blanks, right? And they have to, there's, you know, every like seventh word is taken out. There's three options for what that word could be, the correct answer and two other options. And they have to fill that in. And then you get like a silent reading fluency uh, score for them. And that's kind of also a sort of a general comprehension measure. Well, when I was working in the district, teachers did not understand using that data. And they were fighting me and like, we don't want to use this for, for, um, for assessing student progress. And I said, well, I said, just do it. Just stick with me here. Do it for your screening and do three data points. And then I will take your data and I will analyze it for you. And I will create and I will show you how it's showing that these kids are making progress. And what what happened was when I showed the teachers that and, and these kids, like some of these classrooms, the entire classroom was red. 
meaning at risk, identified at risk at the beginning on the screening measure. But then they gave it again two weeks later. Now some kids are starting to move into the yellow and are starting to look like, oh, they're getting closer to being on grade level. And then the third time they gave it and then there's a few more. Now some kids are getting into the green and they're moving. And you can start to see this movement. You can start to see these shifts where some of these, especially a couple of these were really effective teachers. And they could, but they hadn't been able to see the progress that students were making on say like a star like assessment, right? Like the students just were continuing to struggle on the star system, but they were doing well. They were starting to do better and better on this, these maze measures and the teachers had totally flipped their ideas around, around. They're like, oh my gosh, I want to do it again because I want to see, are the kids making more progress? So I said, that's the whole idea is this is way more sensitive than some kind of big multiple choice test that you're giving to assess comprehension that you're not going to see these outcomes yet because it's not as sensitive. And so the idea behind curriculum based measures is trying to document for yourself and look to see is my instruction really have the impact it should because if it if your impact if your instruction is uh is designed and having the impact then you will see changes on curriculum based measures because they are sensitive enough to show those changes the other thing that people have a really hard time with curriculum based measures is students will not just go in a straight line they'll kind of they'll go up on one then they'll kind of maybe drop a little bit then they'll go up again then they'll kind of drop and then they'll go up again the idea that's why trend lines are so important because what you do is you put that data on a line graph and then you put a trend line through it. And that trend line shows you uh, shows you the the sort of the trend, that's why it's called a trend line, that the data is taking. And that line can tell you if a child is going to by the end of the end of the intervention, end of the year, whatever, wherever your goal is for the student, if they're going to achieve that goal. By then you also create an aim line and you compare that trend line to that aim line consistently. And if they're close, right then your intervention's working you're you're on the aim line it's good if it's above the aim line even better that means you're accelerating that student progress beyond the goals you set that means a couple things either one maybe the student can exit intervention because your intervention is getting them has eventually will get them up to where they need to be so maybe by the end you can say look i can exit the student because they met my goal or maybe you need to increase the goal because maybe you set the goal too low. Maybe your expectation was too low for the student. So maybe you up the expectation and then keep them in the intervention. If the goal, if the trend line is below the goal line, then that says if you get three or four data points, then that trend line shows, nope, this is not where we want it to be. Then that's your indication right there. We need to analyze our instruction we're providing in core and in intervention because this is not accelerating the student's progress. And we need to do something about it now versus waiting another eight weeks to, to implement something different. So that's the whole idea behind curriculum-based measures. Um, and people do not get training in curriculum-based measures at the university. I can tell you that straight out. In fact, when I taught, uh, I teach applied human learning uh, to for folks who are gonna be general educators, uh, I teach sometimes in, out of the ed psych department at UT. And they'll, this one, the class, it's a class where they're supposed to learn about assessment. And when I asked my fellow, my colleagues who were gonna be teaching the class, the first time I taught it, I said, oh, I see on here that we're supposed to teach about assessment. Do we teach about progress monitoring and curriculum based measures? And these university professors looked at me like with deer, like deer in the headlights, like, we don't know what you're talking about. They're like, what do you mean progress monitoring for curriculum based? I'm like, you know, like where you assess kids like who are maybe struggling or who are in interventions and you, you know, track that progress over time to see. They're like, oh, I don't, we don't even know what you're talking about. No, we just teach like the difference between norm reference tests and criterion reference tests. And I'm like, well, that isn't really very helpful. Like that's all you do. Uh, so I actually, and when I teach that class, I embed and teach about progress monitoring. And I actually have the students progress monitor a student, one or two students um, in the class that they're doing their practica in. So we can look at that data and we can talk through and, and I can show them how important it is to do that. But I have to say, I'm actually going against the grain by having students, general ed students, pre-service teachers learn that stuff because nobody else is doing that. And I'm not sure, I might get in trouble if anybody found out I was doing that, but I figured, you know what, I'll just say I'm sorry afterwards. And because I just, because teachers need to know how to do this and and nobody is teaching them how to do you this. You should just beat the drum and fly like the song says. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, you know, honestly, I, I got my DIAG um, certificate back in 2006 and then sometime between 2006 and 2017 18 something like that somewhere in there um they required special because i had a special ed certificate before that they required you to you know the the um special ed teachers to go back and get um, a general ed certificate as well and i never did that and then i got my an admin certificate and i was thinking well that looks kind of bad if i don't have a, a you know uh, 
uh, K through six um, or EC six, you know, um, certification, and I have a principal certification, you know, I really should go back and get that EC six. So I like opened it up and, you know, they're talking about exit tickets and formative assessments and summative assessments. And like, maybe that's where the problem is because none of these curriculum based assessments are in that core, you know, EC six certification and people are going to study what they were taught. Yeah. Well, and they do a lot. Yeah. And they do a lot with, you know, these schools, everybody uses those leveling. So Fountains and Pinnell or Bass or whatever you want, that's what they use for assessment. They don't know how to use anything because they've been so focused on what they've been calling balanced literacy, which I put that in quotes, uh, which is basically, quite honestly, is just a code word for doing a lot of whole language stuff, um, maybe with a little bit of word study thrown in there. But, uh, but and, and all of, all of that is based on that leveling system, which derived out of reading recovery, which then led to guided reading, which then led to um, to these leveled literacy li- interventions, which everybody has spent all this money on and all these leveled libraries and things, um, again, with no research to demonstrate that those things are effective and are, are and, eff- and especially for struggling for students who struggle in reading. Um, and again, you can ask Sarah Powell. She has her own version of uh, the problems that are, you know, that happen in mathematics. So, yeah. But what happens when you assess, when you are given an assessment uh, that that is, that is the foundation for how you're going to teach. So if you think that leveling is this end all be all of assessment, then that's what you're going to use to drive the instruction that you provide. So then you put kids in level text and that's how you teach them in the classroom. Um, and then what happens is now you, you know, you have this mandate from the state about using M class or using these other that are more evidence-based assessments, um, but people don't know how to use them. (laughs) So they just, so they keep doing, they do those assessments, but they don't use any of that data because they, uh, they don't understand it. They, and they, they think leveling is the way that they should be doing stuff. So they do those assessments, they put it aside, they don't do anything with it. And then they rely on the leveling. That's one of the things I have to go in schools all the time is like, don't you have your M class data? And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, have you analyzed it? Well, no, we don't know what to do with that. So then I have to take that data and I have to go through it and I have to walk them through what that means and help them group their students based on that data. Cause they don't know how to use it. And, and for the math, by the way, next week I'm having a, uh... Um, Vander Hayden, Dr. Vander Hayden, do you know her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that should cover a lot of the math. Um, she, she created curriculum based measures using or did research on curriculum based measures for correct digits per minute. Um, and mm-hmm. I, that's what I love about CBMs is you don't just have, can they do it, but can you, can they do it with both accuracy and fluency? fluency. Yeah. Right. So rate and yeah. accuracy are both considered at the same time and which, yep which is basically the definition of automaticity and you can't build further learning if you're not automatic. So that is, and that is a huge thing. People are not teaching things and having students practice to automaticity. So they'll say, Oh, this kid can kind of read. They're fine. We'll move on to the next thing. And the kid doesn't have it. And then they'll say, well, yeah, they only scored low on this because they couldn't do it quickly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't understand the importance of that, of that autom- that idea of automaton. Um, and kinder, first and second grade teachers really don't understand that. And it's highly, highly important that they understand that. Um, and they don't. Right. And then we become Johnny come lately. Right? So, yeah. um, so what do you think is the status of RTI in Texas? Or what are there, are there some success stories? Uh, I mean, I think for me, you know, I, I go to my, in one of my districts, they had interventionists and I'll go sit with the math interventionists and I'd say, you know, why are you, why are the kids, every kid I test, you know, doesn't understand that in a vertical problem, you're supposed to put the answer on the bottom. They, they don't know where to put the answer to a addition problem when it's, when it's mm-hmm. vertical and, and what are you, what, what exactly, how do you figure out what you're teaching them? And she says, well, I, I look at the lessons that are coming and I pre-teach and I reteach. And, and the reason why it's, it's vertical, you know, they don't, they, I never expose them to vertical um, math problems. I only expose them to horizontal ones. And I'm like, why? And she says, because, uh, you know, it's this book that, that, you know, teaches that, you know, math problems should be like an equation should be equal on each side. So it has to look like we, so we don't, we do not show them certain kinds of setups of math problems until we're absolutely ready that they understand certain things. And I'm like looking, where's this research coming from? And it's, you know, and the, I was talking about all these levels of 
evidence of from research. And there are some people who just write books, they're researchers and they write books and that, that would be research um, based instruction, but it's not evidence based instruction that somebody hasn't taken that and tested it out. I'm like that might be an interesting concept, but did you really, did you really yeah. put a study to it? Do you know yeah. this is effective? You know, why yeah. are we, why are we, you know, preventing kids from being exposed to certain, you know, things. And, and so what I loved with this T, T, TEMI, is it really caught on that people in Texas do that? Because in the TEMI, it says the answer goes here. <laughs> in the instructions. And I was like, yes. And that's why it's so important. I mean, math curriculum and, and especially in Texas is, you know, with the TEKS and not following, you know, the uh, core curriculum that a lot of the other states use, the, the, the Texas uh, the Texas math instruction is going to be a lot different. And that's why I was so excited about the TMI because it's normed on Texas kids. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to adjust that instructions for that assessment based on things kids in Texas experience. And it's looking at those basic foundational skills that we need to know the kids can do before they do other things. So, um, uh, and you're going to, I guess I looked all in the folders you gave me and I couldn't find the TEMI. I was going to ask you later if I could get it. Um, yeah. Or you I could point to me where it is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah. And and maybe we can um, share it maybe on Facebook or something so we can download it. But it's there are um, kinder first and second. Um, and there's basically four um, assessments that are two minutes each for beginning, yeah. middle and end of year. And mm -hmm. it's um, looking at numeration and then finally building onto calculation. So um, yep. a lot of times they're teaching all this calculation, but we we d don't make sure that kids have numeration first. A lot of times I'm going back in goals when I'm doing reevaluations and I'm going back and saying, well, why are you teaching two-step word problems when a ch child doesn't know how to um, compare and order numbers they don't know numeration so how can they so their calculations don't mean anything to them they're just robots doing doing robotic work you know yeah yeah so, um so yeah i try to ref i try to use curriculum based measures in my evaluations and then now that we have to these impact and need statements actually the only example from ta that i've been able to find for an impact statement says specifically in it that you should include curriculum-based measures in your impact statement. So we really cannot be as diagnosticians doing evaluations without talking about curriculum-based measures because we have to write an impact statement and TEA wants us to put that in our impact statement. So yeah. um, this is it. This is this, you know, all this guidance, corrective action, making us use, um, this is the time. We've got to say something now. The curriculum-based measures must be used because, you know, finally TEA is, is recognizing that and we are backed up now you know we feel i mean i feel a little bit like i have something behind what i'm saying now whereas yeah you know like you said deer and headlights before yeah so well yeah. and one of the things that y'all can do is help teachers to know how to use that data because teachers don't that this is one of the things i've actually talked with like school psychologists diagnostics and i've, and I've I've been asked sometimes to come in classroom to into like graduate level classes with school psychologists and just talk to them about how this is one of their jobs that they could be doing is helping teachers understand how to use curriculum based measures, how to graph that progress and look at that data um, to to then target their interventions and adapt them based on what they're seeing uh, student progress. And we have free measures. I mean, we have you know, Dibbles is free. We have the Texas Middle School Fluency Assessment that you can use in middle school that goes all the way up through eighth grade. Uh, Dibbles now goes all the way up through eighth grade uh, with oral reading fluency and maze measures. So there's really, you know, there's really no excuse for not doing curriculum, curriculum using curriculum-based measures. It's just a matter of lack of knowledge and lack of ability to understand yeah. that data. And I think it's so funny that you're bringing up um, maze measures because that's been my like latest kick now it's like oh i have to do a maze measure the kids in fourth grade or higher then i'm going to do a maze measure because they said it's a high a better predictor of future reading um for higher grades uh than than some of the other measures for predicting how whether they're successful in reading mm -hmm. and um yeah, it's been really interesting and you know doing those measures on kids because 
um, I get some really interesting results. Uh, just learn, like doing these curriculum-based measures, I know some understand reading and math so much better now. Like mm -hmm. it, you just, you learn from it. You see how kids learn from so much more from those than you do from these formal measures that we give. Yeah. Um, all right. So what can we, besides just going and I mean, and I have to say too, uh, put it aside that going to the teachers and saying, Hey, you know, I could show you how to do this. Um, a lot of people see it as you're, you're giving teachers one more thing. They, they love to use that word, the, the combination of words, one more thing. And um, we have to protect our teachers from you giving them one more thing to do. Um, yeah. So that, that goes back to my whole point about if you would stop looking at RTI as an extra thing to do, and use it as your actual lens for doing everything. So then you will stop doing stuff that does not matter. <laughs> do right. you know how much time is wasted on things that do not matter, that do not make a difference for students? I actually watched a video of a teacher working in her classroom with her. I did this with two teachers, kindergarten teachers in a district. Um, the principal had sent me this video and there was literally out of 75 minutes, there was maybe 15 minutes worth of, of instruction and of actual learning happening. The other hour plus was literally nothing. And I could not, the only way I said, I like, I'm going to have to sit and watch this with them because I know they're going to see it. And sure enough, we watched the first 25, 30 minutes together. And then they were like, turn it off. They're like, I see. <laughs> I'm, they're like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, you are not doing anything that makes any difference to these. This is a, literally a 75 minutes of just almost completely wasted time. And you multiply that out, how often that is happening, which is probably almost every day. This is why it's, this is why students are struggling. It has nothing to do with having a learning disability. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, with all these other things. It just has to do with the fact that we are not doing things at the level that we need to be doing them in classrooms. We are wasting way too much time doing stuff that does not matter. And so if we looked at things from an RTI lens and every single thing that we're doing on our campus instructionally from an RTI lens, we would cut out all of that crap and we would only be focusing in on the things that really make a difference for students. And then students would be enjoying school much more because they would be learning at a much higher rate. And students like learning. They like being successful. Wow. So I'm going to open the floor to questions and comments. Um, we, I know I, we've taken a little bit more time than I was this, but this is so important. So um, I appreciate you hanging in there with us, everybody. Um, so yeah, any, we got some comments in the chat. One person says, what would you say to schools that have RTI meetings provide accommodations? And that's their RTI, the meeting and the accommodations. And what is um, your opinion of various progress monitoring programs like iStation, iReady, AmesWeb, et cetera? So some of those are, are progress monitoring measures and some of those are not. And I think there's a lot yeah. of confusion as to which ones are. Yeah. So the first question about accommodations and meetings, that sounds to me like special education. Like this is this is one of the problems when I get at when I'll ask, get asked to come in and I'll a district will hire me sometimes as a consultant to come in and look at what they're doing for RTI and give them recommendations and then help them plan out and do a better job of planning their framework. Very, very often, the only thing they have in place that they call RTI is a pre-referral process for special education. That is not RTI. <laughs> RTI is a general education framework for creating systems, for analyzing data, and for providing instruction at the level that students need it, at the, to, to meet specific students' needs. If you are just having meetings and accommodations, that's not doing any of those things just said. That's not doing any, that has none of those non-negotiables that I listed at the beginning are involved in what you do in that, in those. So that's, that's the answer to the first question. The second question is, those, some of those things um, that you listed off there are, okay, so AmesWeb, for example. AmesWeb is just dibbles on the computer. So it is an evidence-based way of, it is an assessment that you can use and it is it, it just costs a lot of money because they have this whole fancy system for taking the data, organizing the data, giving you percentiles, uh, telling you which students look more tier two, tier three, using some algorithms and stuff. It's fine to use, it's just expensive. So a lot of places, you know, only purchase it for special ed or only purchase it for a certain number of students. Um, one of the districts I worked in got enough money together and they purchased it and used it across the district in uh in k through five it's great data it's and i've helped them analyze that data and create reports on it, but you have to teach people how to use the system and that's the problem is a lot of people don't know how to use the system don't know how to look at those reports don't know administrators don't know how to help teachers look at those data so that's fine 
iStation was something that the state put out when I was actually out in the district. They were trying to come up with some way of picking up for Star and that these kids were really going to struggle on Star. And so they got this and said, everybody do this. Well, the problem with that is um, then everybody decided, oh, well, that's going to be our tier two and our tier three intervention. Put the kids on the computer and that'll be our tier two and tier three intervention. No, in our district, I said, no, that's not our intervention. That isn't a, you can use iStation, but it's part of core instruction. If we're going to do interventions, our interventions are going to be teacher and student uh, in a small group together. Uh, if we had a computer-based program that could teach kids how to read, everybody would be using it. Computers do not teach kids how to read. Uh, so we used it as something that could be done in core instruction, but it was not part of our tier two or our tier three. It was just an extension of tier one or, or a material or resource that you could use in tier one. Um, some of the other things, I think you said iReady. I don't know iReady as well, but... Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's things that are being used in class. This is data. This is Dibble's data that folks are looking at, like nonsense word fluency. And all. these are fine. These are good kinds of data. Again, that's not the problem. The problem is nobody knows how to use those data. And they've been so used to using other data uh, that they that they just stick with that non-research-based data and continue to, to use it and just kind of do the M class without really knowing how to how to use that data. Right. The um, iReady is a curriculum based assessment where it's just saying how many of the, you know, teaks have you mastered pretty much, mm -hmm. um, yeah, which I don't, I, yeah, I don't know find it interesting is, yeah, um, it's, it's relatively new, I think. Um, and um, <laughs> one person asked, how do you become an RTI interventionist? Um, I think I've, that's why I went to, I decided to actually go get my admin certificate for that very reason. And I, mm -hmm. when I did my admin certificate, I was trying to, like, I went to all my professors and said, look, every project that I want to do, I want to do it um, in the context of RTI or special education, you know, something not, I don't want to just do it as like a, a typical pr principle. I want to do it in the context of, of intervention and, and, um, school improvement. So um, I was able to explore a little bit about that, but uh, some resources I found is Vanderbilt University has a mm -hmm. uh, internship that I applied to. I don't know if I'll get into it, but they have a summer internship um, for learning about RTI. I mean, like from Vanderbilt University, that's like a big, big yeah. deal. Um, the, yeah, I helped them. They have the um, iris. So that might be something. If, I mean, yeah, if you that's where I found the, your the iris. <laughs> Yeah, the iris. Uh, yeah, I helped to back when they were first doing that. They recorded me, and I was mostly talking about again, like core reading instruction, uh, so tier one instruction. And uh, those modules are really good. The iris module. Um, you know, I'm gonna be honest with you. Out in the world that I go out and work in schools and in the district I was in, um, to become an interventionist, there were different things. Sometimes, if it was a if it was a good process, you were actually uh, a really effective general ed teacher. So you did a really good job teaching kids in small group and, and accelerating student progress. And so they would say, hey, you're a really good teacher. Would you uh, want to be an RTI interventionist on our campus? Um, sometimes it wasn't such a good process. Sometimes it was trying to get somebody out of the classroom who was not a good teacher and trying to basically say, okay, you're not a good teacher, but if we give you this program and we train you in this program, maybe you can teach these more struggling kids. Sometimes it's a, a paraprofessional. So paraprofessionals, actually, there's some research that shows if you train paraprofessionals well, give them a good program and give them really good training in how to provide uh, interventions, they can do a good job. The problem is the ifs that I just said don't always happen. So I've gone in to watch interventions, say, like I was watching a uh, paraprofessional, the kindergarten kiddo. And all she was doing was the, this kiddo was struggling in phonemic awareness. And all she was doing was doing flashcards with letter names. That's not phonemic awareness. Uh, and she, but she didn't know any better. I mean, she was just doing what she had been given. So, uh, so who gets to be an interventionist is widely varied based on campus resources, based on who the principal decides to ask to be an interventionist, and then their reasoning for why that person should be an interventionist. And it's not always good reasoning. So. And then there's the RTI coordinators for the district as well. Like usually it's maybe, a, it, they're usually always general ed people. Like there's, you never see anybody switch from special education to a general ed position very often. It's, then, you yeah. know, I feel like a lot of that's a reflection of a us and them kind of thing, um, which is unfortunate because we really should be working together. But yeah, that's what I've seen is a lot of them are, are general ed people. They're not sure about special ed people switching over to, a, you know, to something like that in administration. Um, 
So it, it's yeah. a challenge, I think. A lot of people go from, uh, and usually the, the 504 coordinator for the district is oftentimes also the RTI um, yep. person for the district too. Yep. Yeah. So it just, yeah, and it's, exactly. it's a very, there's no like certification for it or, nope. um, or mm -hmm. you just sort of have to figure out a way to wander your way into that. Yeah. That's exactly. And I mean, sometimes the interventionists who I've seen are good. And I know like one district there, speaking of the district person, like one of the districts that I've worked with most recently, um, they had person, and they took a principal who wasn't a very effective principal and they put them in the position of being the district RTI coordinator. So I had to actually like, train that person and how to do this stuff. And like you said, she was also going to be the 504 coordinator. And she really knew nothing about any of this stuff. So she was having to learn all the legal stuff and all the uh, logistics and all of this. And she really had just no understanding at all of any of this. So she was kind of starting from square one and knew that, but really didn't have the background knowledge to do this stuff that we're talking about and to help people in any way do these things effectively. And I, I will tell you too, like I have worked at the district level and you know, there's some district level administrators who are amazing, who are great, but there's a lot who have been moved out, moved away from campuses. Maybe they weren't an effective principal. Maybe they didn't want to teach anymore. So they came to the district level and um, they don't always know this stuff. They don't know these things that we're talking about. Um, again, there's just a real lack of, I think you can hear the, <laughs> this sort of the theme here is this lack of understanding, this lack of um, knowledge about these things and how to put these processes in place. So I've been given a lot of thought about, you know, what can we do as diagnosticians besides, like I said, putting the CBMs in our in our papers, you know, building some trust with teachers and principals and trying to, you know, give them some of that information. But also, like, it comes back to parents, too, because a lot of our referrals are parent referrals. And what I was reading is that, you know, one of our job, one of the jobs of educators is to teach parents about what interventions are available, give them information about what the intervention is going to look like, and then give them also information about their child's progress through the whole RTI process. So then when you say, by the way, if you want a special education evaluation, maybe they'd say, well, I don't know, my kid's doing pretty good in this intervention. I don't think I need a, a, a special ed evaluation here. You know, yeah. whereas yeah. what we're doing is the opposite. We're going to the parent. We're making them worried. We're telling them we we are not able to get your kid to make progress. You must have a disability. It's not us and your kid. And, you know, mm -hmm. we need to do this evaluation to show you that. And I just and had I this like conversation. So <laughs> I just had this conversation <laughs> twice this week with friends of mine whose kids go to school the same who are friends with my my daughter. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, in fact, one of them, I just sent her a spelling assessment. I said, give her the spelling assessments and then let me come over. I'm going to look at the data with you. And she, cause she wants to know what to do with her over the summer. And I said, and we'll sit down and I will, uh, also listen to her read and do a fluency assessment with her. And then, um, I can tell you then from that, I can get some ideas about what you need to do to work on with her over the summer. So, but that was the second conversation within a week with somebody um, talking about, this was a second grade. My daughter's actually a fourth grader. This was her, one of her friend's uh, little sisters. Um, and, and yeah, this parent's worried. She's like, well, what am I, what do I need to do? Like I, this, I don't want my child to, you know, to struggle. And, um, and, and, and they're not framing it as we're not teaching effectively. They're framing it as there must be something wrong with your daughter. Right. Well, again, we, you know, and I, I can always tell the story of my son, which we don't have time for, but you know, it was this, the same thing when he was in first grade. His teacher did not know what she was doing, told me straight out she didn't know anything about teaching phonics and phonemic awareness and wouldn't be teaching those things. And so I had to do it myself at home. I did the Theo Woodruff tier three with my son for about seven months. And now he's fine. He's in a freshman in high school, never been in special ed, never been identified. In fact, his teachers think he's a great reader because I taught him how to read in first grade. And I did it before the end of first grade. And then he was fine. Um, and then did some spelling stuff with them in second grade. But people, like kids don't have Thea Woodruff living at home with them. It shouldn't be on the parents to do these things. Teachers should have the knowledge and the skills to be able to do these things in the classroom and stop doing stuff that doesn't make a difference. Right. 
Right. Wow. Uh, I mean, I hope you guys, like, your mind, I hope your mind is blown, because, like, I thought my mind was blown, but I'm really blown right now. And I just really, really, really thank you for everything that you're doing. Like, and to keep doing it, even though, like, you come on deaf ears a lot of times, you're just, like, <laughs> banging your head on a wall, like, and to just keep doing it. Like, I just really want to, you know, that really inspires me to keep, you know, saying these things over and over again and finding the right ways you know i know that's important to find the right way to to right time to build those relationships with people to be able to to show people these things but we just can't give up is all i'm trying to say we yeah. cannot give up on yeah. well and teachers want to do the right, all right thing. Well, so once you show them they will they will do it it's just a matter of showing them you know and helping them to do this stuff because right. some of this stuff is hard right Right. And, and also just like giving them encouragement and, and, and yep. making it inspirational and helping them feel successful, not, yep. you know, oh, well, you're doing something wrong, you know, kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure. exactly right. All right. No one wants to join the stage. They're all shy. <laughs> but yeah, there a lot of people are telling me they're going to listen to the replay because they have things going on today. And, um, you know, the, the diag world right now is we're on a mad rush to the end of the year. So, yeah. Um, I know. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. Yes. Yes. Keep, I'm going to keep following everything you're doing and I'm going to you know, share the TEMI once I figure out where it is on Facebook. So okay. look for that. Um, yep. All right. Thanks so much. I'm going to close the room um, and, and uh, we will be following everything uh, up on Facebook and in future room. The future room tomorrow uh, next week is going to be with Amanda Vader, Vander Hayden on um, math. So perfect. Should be fun. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much.